Hello everybody, I am Lucia Matuonto and welcome to the Relatable Voice podcast, a talk show where my guests and I talk about relatable everyday situations, books, and the environment we live in. Remember to subscribe and follow the podcast on social media so you can be notified when a new episode is available. Let's begin. Today, we are heading to Toronto to chat with Danielle Sibowski. Danielle is a podcaster, speaker, a medievalist, and author of four books. Her latest book, How to Live Like a Monk, Medieval Wisdom for Modern Life, is out now. So, Danielle, welcome to the RV. Thank you. It's so lovely to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Of course, I'm super happy to have you here. I have so many questions for you, Danielle. You have no <laughs> idea. <laughs> yes. Bring it on. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> okay, so as a medievalist, you must have come across some juicy myths about the medieval period. So, spill mm -hmm. the beans. What are some <laughs> common misconceptions people have about that era? Well, I think there are a few ones that are really big. Maybe the first one, the easiest one, is that people think that medieval people thought the earth was flat. And they didn't think the earth was flat. They knew it was round. You can see it in pictures. They have all sorts of pictures and paintings that show the world, the world as a sphere. So you see the world mapped out and it's almost always a circle. So they knew that the earth is round. So that is one big thing. The ancient Greeks had already figured that out and that knowledge wasn't lost. People still knew that the earth was a sphere, which is kind of funny because you have people today that think it's flat. So, yeah, know, that's what I was going to yeah. in some ways. <laughs> so many yes. ways. Yeah, well, I was going to say the other one is that uh, people people nowadays think that back in the day, no one bathed, that they were just smelly all the time. But they actually did bathe. They enjoyed bathing. They had baths all the time. Lucia, you've spent a lot of time in Spain. You know that there's old Roman baths all over Europe. And those were still in existence in the Middle Ages. People still used them. And then they had baths at home. And then they washed their hands before they ate. So people were a lot cleaner than they're given credit for. So those are two of the biggest myths for sure. It's good to know that they were maybe more advanced than us now. <laughs> yes, it's true. I mean, we can look at photographs from space now and we can see that it's round, but people still don't believe it. Back in the day, people didn't know it was a sphere. So there you go. Just because we exist later doesn't mean everybody is just as smart, I guess. Yeah, totally. And what fascinating historical facts can you share to set the record straight? Mm -hmm. um, well, it kind of comes back to all of these myths that people have. I think there's a lot of myths around the roles of women, for example, thinking that they had to be quiet all the time and they didn't make a ruckus when really women had quite a lot of power 
in relative terms, more than their Roman counterparts did, more than later counterparts did. So they could be pretty independent, especially as widows. And they were the ones who were in charge when the men were away. If the men had to go on crusade, if they had to go on war for war, or they had to go for trade or something like that, the women were in charge. And that meant everything from running the house to defending it. So there's a whole bunch of myths around the Middle Ages. And the, the role of women is another one where they actually had more rights than people think and more rights than women did at other periods of history. So that is that is something that I think we need to set the record straight on as well. I'm curious, Danielle, to know about which medieval job you would least want to have and why. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, this is... It's a real job, but it's a really disgusting job. So <laughs> people did have latrines or outhouses in their backyard sometimes, or they might have a pit in the castle, or they might just have a hole that kind of went to the outside of the castle. But if they, if they had an outhouse in the backyard, they usually used an old wine barrel for it, for the the container and sometimes it would get full and someone would have to come and take it away. And that person's name in English was the gong farmer. So they would oh. come and clean out your latrine and take the waste away outside the city. And that is the job that I would probably least want. <laughs> that is a dirty job, but someone's got to do it. Yeah. Oh, cleaning out the latrine. Oh my gosh. No, I think <laughs> I, you know, I think I would go into be the court jester. You know, <laughs> yeah, at least you get good food, right? Yeah. And uh, Danielle, I, that's so interesting. First of all, why did you decide to become a medievalist? It's because I was always really interested in stories. I really liked those Disney movies, Sleeping Beauty and Robin Hood, the cartoons. And I was really interested in it, but kind of in a sideways type way, just it was on the edge of my interest. But then when I went to university, I realized that you could be your job, like you could actually spend your career just reading this stuff all the time. I just never realized you could do that. And I thought that is a fun job where you just get yes. to learn more about this time and you can spend a career learning about King Arthur if you want. And that sounded pretty good to me. So that's really what got me started in it. It's not something I had considered until I started taking these courses in university. And then I thought, well, if you could have any job, this sounds like a good one. It's much better than a gong farmer, if you ask me. <laughs> and I'm sure you love history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I came into it through the stories. So I came into it through English literature, but medieval English literature. And then as I was studying that, you can't really understand people's writing, their stories, unless you understand their culture and what was going on at the time. So. To understand the literature better, I started taking a lot more courses in actual history, and that has taken that's taken much of my time in my studying now is learning about the actual physical world of the Middle Ages, the cultural world of the Middle Ages. And then I still have a great love for the literature. So my understanding of the period has extended because I wanted to understand the stories. And now, now I'm understanding the period in a more full way in order to understand that that literature better. Mm -hmm. And living as a modern person in medieval times would 
undoubtedly pose significant challenges. How do you think a modern individual accustomed to the comforts of electricity, hot showers, computers, would manage to survive for an entire month in the in these harsh conditions of medieval times. <laughs> I think it would be a culture shock for sure. And the things that you're talking about are definitely important and things that we take for granted. Electricity. I mean, we are we are talking over Zoom. <laughs> that would totally be impossible. Yeah. We would have to take months to see each other if we wanted to see this back in the day. So it would be a massive culture shock and you would really have to slow down and spend time creating a meal, for example, which would take a lot of the day, depending on what you're making. And you would really, I think, be surprised by the quiet and the quiet in your mind as well, because you don't have all of the notifications that we have today. So you don't have things pulling your focus in all directions. That's not to say that you don't have, you know, children or animals or people on the street that are, you know, making that background noise. So it's not completely quiet. But I think it's one of those things where you have people in the modern world today that say they go off on like a monastic retreat or something they go on a meditation retreat for a few weeks and at the beginning they find it very difficult and by the end they're happy because they can hear themselves think so i think yeah. there would be a point at which you would adapt and you would start to um, make the best of it but it's definitely not as comfortable as our lives today i mean i'm a very much a modern person i like my central heating <laughs> I like my mm -hmm. electricity i wouldn't want to live back in those days but i think that there is a certain quiet to it that we could appreciate if we were only staying there for a month. And Danielle, your latest book titled How to Live Like a Monk explores mm -hmm. the incorporation of certain habits practiced by monks that can enhance our lives. We know mm -hmm. that monks are very religious, live a simple life and follow certain rules to discipline themselves. So can you tell us more about their way of life and also a little bit about this book? Right. Okay. So monks lived a very difficult life on purpose. So my book is not telling people to become monks because monks are trying to live a difficult life on purpose because getting rid of that self, getting rid of the enjoyment that you get from comfort is part of what they're doing because they're making a sacrifice to God. That is that is the point. They're not trying to be like ultimately happy. Uh, at least the Benedictine monks that I talk about mostly in this book, they're trying to make a sacrifice to God. So that means that they are obedient to the point where they're not supposed to really do things for themselves. They're supposed to just obey. They're supposed to just pray, work, sleep and pray again. That said, if you actually read the rules for monks, there's a lot of leniency in there saying like, you're a human, you might get depressed, you might need to take a break, that's fine, just come back to it when you're ready. So there is there's a lot of leniency built in recognizing the fact that this life is difficult, and it might be challenging, and you just got to do your best. But the things that were interesting to me, the reason that I took on this project, 
it was brought to me by my editor at Abbeville, so I can't take credit for the idea. But my work has always been about how we are the same, like similar humans being similar over time. And so I looked into the science about the ways in which we can live a healthier life and many of the ways that make us healthy, the things that we can do to make us healthy, were built into the monastic lifestyle. So everything from eating a Mediterranean diet, right? So lots of fish, vegetables, and whole grains, there's that. But things like meditation have been shown over and over and over again to be very healthy for your mind and body and the benefits that you get from just doing a few minutes of meditation a day over the course of a few months. If you never do it again, you still get benefits from it. So monks are doing these things, are eating a good diet, um, at least a healthy diet for human beings. They're meditating, which is good. They've built green space into their monasteries because they believe that green space is healthy and it will help you rejuvenate yourself if you were working inside for too long, like they used to copy a lot of books, for example. And so like us, they're doing a lot of work inside. And so having this green space built into the monastery is meant to refresh them. So this book brings together modern science, a lot of stuff that has been done, work that's been done um, on psychological subjects, bringing that together with the medieval history that I've learned and knowledge about monks. So it's not meant to tell people to be monks. It's not meant to tell people to be religious, but it's it's meant to compare and show the things that make us healthy are things that made us healthy hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, and to just demonstrate that uh, there are ways to take care of ourselves that are consistent over time that will make us have a bit more peace and a bit of a healthier life. Yes. My impression is that monastic life is about living ethically. Yeah, it's it's in part ethics in that you have to be good to people or you're never going to make it to heaven, right? So the monk's goal, their ultimate goal is to be saved, is to be in heaven in the end. And so everything that they do points in that direction. So this includes things like welcoming strangers, you they were not supposed to turn travelers away they would take travelers in and feed them and send them on their way they were the people who ran hospitals so they were taking care of people um, outside in the community and so all of these things were meant to give them to achieve salvation so they are doing good <laughs> because that's their goal yeah. but their goal is innately selfless and so yeah they are working they are working to achieve salvation eventually. And, you know, again, this is not the point of my book. <laughs> I'm not saying we are all aiming to reach heaven. We all have our different goals in life, yeah. but that is what they're doing. And that the ethical part of it is all part of the goal to, to achieve heaven in the afterlife. Mm -hmm. And how did you research for this book, Danielle? Did you visit the <laughs> monasteries? Well, I got the contract for this book just as COVID-19 hit. So no, I didn't travel anywhere. <laughs> I had to research from my own my own shelf, all the research that I'd had, because I was pretty familiar with the Middle Ages. I'd been working on it for well over a decade at that point. And then 
yeah, there's a lot that you can find out online and read psychological papers and read work about it. There's uh, so many books out there on the benefits of meditation. And again, it's not just, you know, Joe down the street that's giving you this information. It's tested and tested and tested. And so the research I was doing was online because I couldn't travel, <laughs> but it was the psychological papers and journals, just like you would do for any other nonfiction book. I don't know if you know this place called Borobudur in Indonesia. No. no. I've traveled to Indonesia and then I decided to visit this. Um, it's not a monastery. It's a Buddhist temple. But there I saw numerous monks. They emanated the tranquility and they have a peaceful expression on their faces. I felt that place was so peaceful. It was like being in paradise. I really loved mm -hmm. the energy of that, that place. That's why when you say how to live like a monk in a sense of maybe try to be more quiet or maybe not quiet, but don't push yourself too much. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And it's funny because I was expecting when I looked at the writing that the monks were doing in the Middle Ages, I was expecting to find them saying, push your heart yourself hard because they are trying to live a life that is difficult and austere and all of those things. But over and over again, I would see them writing cautionary tales saying this person didn't rest and they just prayed all the time and it gave them basically a mental breakdown and then they couldn't serve God. So don't do that. <laughs> Pace yourself because you have an ultimate goal in mind and the goal is more important than burning yourself out on the way. So that was one of the things I put in the book is that to live like a monk is to actively avoid burning out. Even if you are committed to a goal, the best way to reach it is not to burn yourself out on the way. It's to pace yourself and get there and hopefully enjoy the path to get there because there is time. There's there's time enough to slow down and really think about life on the day to day. But we don't often see it because we yeah. have so much chaos in our lives. Yeah, that's why meditating is so important because at least let's say for 10, 15, 20 minutes, you will sit down and stay there with your own thoughts. Danielle, are there any particular anecdotes without spoilers or stories in the book that illustrate the connection between medieval monastic practice and modern life? I think all of the anecdotes are very short, <laughs> so people can can discover them on their own. And I do have quotes at the beginning of the chapter that illustrate and I think really connect us as people because our problems are the same, right? Our challenges are the same. So it's easy to make those connections. But I think that the part that might be relatable to people is the fact that you can have a goal and it will still be challenging. For example, monks were not meant to have their own possessions. They were meant to only have communal possessions. 
and not very many of those. But we see stories of monks getting in trouble because they kept things to themselves, including pets. <laughs> there was one nun that had a monkey. <laughs> she got in trouble for it because people, we like to collect things and they would sometimes like borrow money for things or they would want to have the best towel or the best robe or whatever. And I think that human frailty is something that we can really connect with where we've all had goals like fitness goals, especially, you know, and, and food goals. I think we can all relate to where we have the best intentions, but the path can be hard. And so seeing these monks who are meant to be kind of the epitome of all that tranquility and that self-discipline that we're talking about, seeing them make mistakes or fall down or have trouble, um, those moments are in the book and I have them there because they're relatable because we can identify with them or I, I can for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so. I, I can't think about leaving, you know, makeup. <laughs> leaving my yeah. I think I would find a secret place to <laughs> stock it. Yes. Yeah, exactly. You'd have to repent for that later, <laughs> confess it later. But yeah, that sort of that sort of relatable frailty is something that is common to us. It must be a very difficult decision to become a monk. Actually, you told us that if they have like any doubt or any problem, they can just take their time, go home. Is that possible? Not in the same way. Like they can't take a vacation and go home. They can't. They have a full year where they are testing it out and deciding. So they live almost as the full brothers do. At least like, we're talking Benedictines again, mm -hmm. but they they don't take the vow until the end of a year. So they have they know what they're getting into because once they take that vow, they are not allowed to take it back. Um, sometimes it did happen, but you really, it's a vow. You're not supposed to do it. So if they did have difficulty, if they did fall into depression, they would, some of the advice that is, it's in the book that you'll see um, is that they could take some time in the infirmary so they could basically go to the hospital, have a break. They wouldn't have to do their work. They wouldn't have to do their prayers. They might have friends that were also in the infirmary at the time so that they could speak because they weren't always allowed to speak, you know, much of the day they were supposed to be silent or they were supposed to take a walk with a friend, just get outside and take a break like that. So they would be taking a break in the monastery. They weren't supposed to leave it but they could spend some time with a friend and just kind of let it out <laughs> or they could take a rest or they could take a break from work. And then it was as if they were sick, right? Take a couple of days off and then come back to it again, refreshed and renewed. But yeah, you weren't supposed to go home and visit your family. You're supposed to leave your family behind when you enter the monastery. It is a difficult existence and people are still monks today they still take these vows and i don't know it depends monastery to monastery if they bend some of these rules and still speak to their families and things but you were not really supposed to do that your this was your new family and you had that full year to make sure this was the life for you they didn't just say like the second you get in the door that's it they close the door on you you had this time to decide if it was what you wanted to do with your life another question can they communicate yeah. with their parents by phone. These days, I think you can. 
I think you can. Back in the day, you could get letters from home, but they would be read by the abbot first. And if your family sent you gifts from home, they sent you like socks or cookies or something, the abbot would de be distributing those amongst the community. They were communal. So you couldn't just get like socks from home and they would come to you. The these things would be distributed as any other possessions in the abbey. So you were not supposed to really keep that relationship wide open, but did people understand that you'd still be speaking to your family? Yeah, people did get letters. They sometimes did get visits as well. But it, it's not the same as, you know, a regular person moving to a different city and visiting. It's not the same as that. But again, this is because it is meant to be all-encompassing, just focusing on God all the time. Uh, and that is the sacrifice that they make. It's a big sacrifice. It is, which is why I don't tell people to live as monks yeah. <laughs> unless they have a calling. <laughs> you yeah. can just pick up exactly. little bits from their life no. instead. For sure. I believe that your book can, can give us some good ideas of how we can benefit from some habits. I have to tell our listeners, Danielle also has a podcast and it's called mm -hmm. The Medieval podcast which i've just subscribed today i subscribed oh. <laughs> yes of course thank so, you tell us a little bit about this podcast sure i know that in the wider world you almost never hear about the middle ages unless it's something bad it's the plague or it's war or it's the templars or it's the vikings so i started this podcast to speak with experts in a way that was public and talk about the things that are interesting right so i've done I've done podcasts on pigs, on sex, on war, on um, hygiene, on how to keep the city streets clean, uh, on Thor, the God of Thunder, or is he the God of Thunder? So pretty much everything, only the interesting stuff about the Middle Ages that you don't really find in other places. And I speak to the experts. So the people I speak to are academics usually, so they have spent you know, years working on one topic. So they are the person who knows about pigs, for example. And that stuff is fun and interesting. And we talk about it in a way that is just really light and enjoyable and just conversations like I'm having with you about people who lived hundreds of years ago. So it's super fun. It's fun for me. We have over 200 episodes like you do, wow. uh, which is a lot. Yeah. yeah. And it just is a whole wide range of subjects, whatever I think is interesting, is what we talk about. For sure, I'm going to listen to at least one episode today because I'm curious to know. For example, something that I'm always curious to know is like when an event like Thunder, you know, what did they think it was happening? I don't know. I think they were really scared. I don't think at this period they would be no. really scared of it. No, because mm -hmm. they understood it. So they understood things well enough to be able to map out the stars, right? So they knew when you were going to have a full moon, when you're going to have an eclipse. They knew all this stuff. So their understanding of the natural world was actually pretty sophisticated uh, in relative terms. I mean, they didn't have microscopes, for example, or telescopes, but they really understood the natural world very well. So were they afraid of thunder? I don't think so. Would they have oh. said it was God? Yep because they didn't have an understanding of static electricity but 
they they told stories of Thor, for example, for entertainment, <laughs> and they could say like if they believed in Thor, they could say, oh, you know, this is Thor making this sound, but didn't mean that they were scared of it. It meant that they were making sense of it in their own way. So like if you were a Christian instead, you'd say like God is bringing us a storm because we need it, or maybe He's angry or whatever. If we didn't like. If you and me didn't have the internet or didn't have school to tell us about static electricity, we'd probably just be saying, oh, this happens sometimes in the summer. You know, it's that kind of thing where they weren't really upset by it because it's just a part of life. It was a part of their lives from the beginning. So, yeah, I don't think that this is a time when they would be scared of it. Just find a way to rationalize it in their minds, whether they thought it was Thor or they thought it was God, you know. Thunder is just a part of life. Yeah, this makes sense. And Danielle, you've been doing a lot. So what is next for you? More books? I don't know. Tell us, please. Tell our listeners. <laughs> well, I'm always trying to find new ways to connect with people. So, I mean, stay tuned on my social media and my podcast because those are the best ways to find out what I'm doing. So the podcast comes out every week. Um, at the time we're recording, there might be a couple breaks because in the summer I'm going to be traveling, but it's pretty much every week. And then in September, I have a new book coming out called Chivalry and Courtesy, Medieval Manners for a Modern World. And if you saw the monk book, you see it's like really cute illustrations and stuff. It's going to be in a similar vein, but it's talking about etiquette, things like table manners, things like chivalry, because people think that no one had any table manners. When if you actually read the books from the time, people are saying, you know, chew with your mouth closed, don't put your elbows on the table, don't wipe your face on your sleeve, the same type of thing that we tell children today. So again, my, my, whole, my whole career has been built around really helping people connect with this time period on a human level. So that's what this book is about too. Everything from table manners to how to get a date, how to fight and how to run a kingdom and how to run your household. So yeah, that's what's coming up in September. Sounds great. So that means that you will come back. I mean, I have <laughs> to go back to Toronto. And Danielle, would you like to leave a message for our listeners today? Um, I would just like to tell your listeners that the reason I work so hard to make these people relatable is because I do think that people are the same underneath. And I'm hoping that the more we can relate to these people from the past, the more we practice relating to people on the other side of the planet, for example. So my hope is that when we extend our compassion, extend our understanding to people who might be familiar to us from Robin Hood stories or something like that, we can use that practice to extend that compassion to people that we are going to meet on, on the regular. Exactly. Thank you so much. Actually, I would like to invite you to write an article about your work for our magazine, The Relatable Voice, so our listeners will be able to know a little bit more about you, to see your book cover, and of course, your socials. But by the way, can you tell us your website, please? Sure. My website is daniellesimbolski.com, which I know is very difficult to spell, so you can find me on social media at, at 
five as in a digit, M-I-N medievalist, because when I started out, I wrote under the name, the five minute medievalist. So if you just Google that, you'll find my work. Sounds great. And thank you for tuning in and check out our website, www.relatable-media.com and download our magazine for free. And next month in July, you'll be able to see Danielle and everything that she has been doing. And Danielle, thank you so much. It was so good to talk with you today. Thank you for inviting me. It's been so nice to meet you. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified when the next one is posted. Please rate this podcast and share it with your friends. Thank you for listening. And remember, relationships don't exist. Relating does. Until next time.